1: Welcome to New Books in African American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I am your host, Adam Xavier McNeil. On today's podcast, I get the esteemed opportunity to interview Fatima Sheikh, author of Economy Hall The Hidden History of a Free Black Brotherhood, published by the Historic New Orleans Collection and distributed by University of Virginia Press in 2021. In this interview, we learn about the story of how two dozen cast-off journals saved from destruction reveal 100 years of black activism in New Orleans. Enjoy the conversation everyone. All righty, and welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today?
0: I'm doing fine. It's nice to be here, Adam.
1: Yes, yes, and and it's, you know, it's been a a, a great honor to bring you on the podcast here. Uh, I've been been out of the game for a couple months, taking care of some some academic stuff. You know, gotta gotta make sure this PhD uh, gets done. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure my my advisor's listening. Like, I'm, I'm, I hear that. Uh, so so you know, you are really the first uh, person I've interviewed in in a little while now. So uh, I'm, I'm excited to get back in the saddle and and get to going on this interview. And uh, you know, just to, before we begin, got a shout out to Scott Manning as well you know the the amazing publishers that you have because he's you know been been really getting at me like hey man you gotta you gotta make sure you get this interview with, with fatima man you you gotta make sure this book is dope uh editorializing a little bit i, I don't think uh, scott put dope in his uh, uh in any of his emails but uh you know just got to give a shout out to him and abigail over there as well a
0: um, little shout out to them too thank you scott and abby
1: yes yes most definitely and so um to begin, what brought you to this phenomenal project, Economy Hall?
0: Well, my father had found these journals in a dump truck, and there were 24 journals. They were all handwritten in French, and he didn't quite know what they were, So, uh, but he did know a little French, so he brought them home, and he thought that he'd get to them at some point, so he put them in the closet. There were about 24 journals. There were very elaborate writing inside of them put them in the closet and they sat there for about 50 years and i was a writer by then and had had a few books out by then maybe two adult books and a few children's books and i decided that i needed new projects so i went to look in the closet to see what was in these books uh, when i got there and i looked at them I saw that by connecting the names to some of the early secondary documents and some primary documents I saw that these were probably the most influential black men in the south who had joined in an organization called the Societe d'Economie the economy society.
1: This is an amazing story y'all and y'all just got to make sure y'all go buy this book you know uh, the the especially because you know as, as someone who's you know, very much reading um, academic monographs, your book is actually uh, a, an amazing reprieve where you get history, but you get great writing. Um, and so it, it's actually a, a question that I'm going further uh, along with in, in my own um, thinking of my work. So I'm going to ask you this. Ultimately, who did you write Economy Hall for?
0: Well, the the reason I wrote the book and the and the people that I wrote the book for were actually the men in the journals. So, you know, I mean, it's it's um, I was trying to have a dialogue with the past in a way. So that they were my first audience. I wanted to do the the men had written these journals. So so the books themselves were these twenty four books, and the books were from eighteen thirty six to nineteen thirty five, and these were members of an organization of black men. So. The things that they wrote about and the things that they had done made me want people to know them. So I was really writing to to elevate them in a way. Um, and then to your more practical point in terms of writing, I, I had read a lot of history. I've always read a lot of history, even though I've been a journalist and a fiction writer. But I found that a lot of times history history texts were sort of hard to read. His, uh, academic history was, was a little difficult to read. So I thought that I'd um, I'd take these men and I'd show their lives and them in terms of the events that happen in their lives and and bring history in that way. So in that way, I was writing for a general audience.
1: Mm. Very good. And so, and like I said, as as someone who is you know knee deep in the in in the in the weeds of um, oftentimes reading academic histories, uh, your your book was very uh, refreshing and and not only uh, the narrative. Uh, structure, but also, you know, m- pretty much ninety-eight uh, percent of the people that you write about in the text were brand new to me, and you know, I, you know, I had to go uh, for for some go, you know, check out Google real quick. Be like, oh snap, I didn't, you know, I, I I didn't even know about this person, and I knew about the historical moments that they were living in, of course, but I didn't know the the, the particular people. Um, and and you talked about you know, liking to read, uh, academic histories and Dr. Gwendolyn Midlow Hall wrote one of the more prominent blurbs on your book. Um, and so, you know, for, for, for those who are not initiated that are listening effectively, Dr. Midlow Hall is the one, right. If you're right, if you're writing about histories of new Orleans, like you gotta cite her, like for sure. Um, and so, in particular, you're using the historic uh, New Orleans collection as well. You know, they, they're, they're, um, they're all around the book. Um, and so, like I said, your structure was really cool. And so you're including a lot of these different narrative flourishes here. But but as the writer, I'm, I'm very interested. The structure is very new for me, and I really liked it. So can you talk about how you ended up determining the actual text structure?
0: Sure. Um, well, it took a little while. It it, it <laughs> took me about five years to read the journals because cause the journals were in French mostly. And uh, so I read them. Uh, they were in French until about 1914, 1912, 1914, and then they were English from about 1926 on. So first I had to read the journals, and then I had to look and back and and do research on the people that were in the books, right? And the places and the events. After I had all of that research, you know, put to the side in, in files and notebooks and things, um, I had to think about the structure, which is what you're talking about. I, I wanted it to read like a, like a novel. So novels have, you know, they, they follow a beginning, middle, and end. They have a climax and a turning point. When I looked at history, history sort of had that, you know, it already had that in there. There was, the, there was a civil war. There was the reconstruction government. There, were, there, were, uh, there was a Plessy versus Ferguson. So it already had a natural arc. So I followed that natural arc, but I did, I did think of it when I was writing all of this research it, it, that it wasn't, it wasn't so important to me to, to talk about the event in a sort of general way that the event, let's say something happened in 1861, right? Okay, so in my mind, yes, it happened. But who was sitting there when it happened who was participating when they happened what did they do where did they live at that time so how far was it from them they probably would have walked to the place how far would it have been for them to walk to the place how long would that have taken you know so those were those were some of the writerly questions that that I had and that um, that I had to answer in, in terms of the senses I guess I, I really wanted to know what were they smelling what were they feeling what were they eating at that time before they went to the meeting.
1: Right. And, and it's so, um, it's, it's so compelling, you know, the stories that you, that you talk about. Um, and, and so it makes me also think about, um, you know, I, I didn't add this part two, but if, if I may, you know, you talked about your process of reading, how it took about five years to uh, read the particular journals, right. Which by the way, like your story, going back to it about, you know, you just literally just stumbling upon that. That to me is just so, it's such a a history writer thing, right? For those kinds of things. It doesn't happen to everybody, of course, but it's just really cool to hear. Um, So can you talk, right, you talked about the five years of reading, but can you also speak to your own writing process? Because, you know, you had mentioned this before, you've done other projects, right? So how did, you know, how, how was this writing process for you? Like, what was what was that for us? Because I'm, I'm sure the the, read, uh, the readers and that are going to be converted, you know, after listening to this podcast would really, really love to know.
0: Well, the, the difference that I noticed between historical writing, the, the, the writing that I read in academic texts and the writing that I read in fiction is this narrative structure. And, and in historical writing, people tend to write along themes. Uh, they'll, they'll have a thesis and they follow that thesis thematically. And mm-hmm. It's not necessarily chronological, it's thematic, right? Mm-hmm. So, so, for me, it was more important for me to basically do, since I had journals that were chronological, to do a chronological structure and then to, do, uh, to personalize it, to, to put people into it. Now, in terms of the process, as a fiction writer, I'm an automatic writer. So, what that means in fiction is that you just sit down and you just start writing. So I know that I may be writing about uh, beauty and I'll just sit down. I I have a character and I'll start writing about beauty and whatever comes out, comes out. And I'll Mm -hmm. just write till the end. Right. Um, With this, I had more of a structure, an outline structure. So I knew that I was going to cover the period, let's say from 1836 to 1842, then 1857 to 1865, you know, like that. So, so those are the structures that I use. So that was very different to to go into it in an outline way, in a structural way.
1: Right. And and as someone who is uh, very much, uh, you know, I'm very much an outline person now. I wasn't a couple of years ago, but Lord knows I've been I've been converted. Lord knows. Uh, and so, it was, you know, outlines to me just help me to kind of think about how things work. But I'm also. Um, I'm very interested to know more, right? And, and this might be something we could talk about offline, but just, you know, developing that, um, you know, that writing process as well, you know, especially over the course of a long period of time.
0: Well, uh, let me just say this to the outline, because the outline, I, I, that wasn't my first outline, right? I, mm. I must have gone through five or 10 outlines before I got to that one, you know? I, at first, I thought it was I was going to organize it. In fact, my, my files were organized, uh, among uh, the people, the place, and the events. So I mm-hmm. thought I was going to do people, place, and events, right, which would be that sort of thematic academic way. And that wasn't working for me because the people had to be somewhere, and I found myself going into the place, right, mm-hmm. or, or, I, or they had to be uh, in, in a particular time, so I found myself going into the events. So I found that the chronological structure was the easiest one, And then within the chronological structure, I'm doing a spatial structure. Okay, so you're Mm -hmm. going. So I'm going a particular year, and then I'm saying a particular place. And then what does that place look like from a from a fiction writer's point of view? What does it look like when I walk in the door? When I enter the room about ten feet? When I go thirty feet into the room? When I'm right up at the speaker's podium? You know, so I'm describing everything on the way in
1: and And I love that, right? Once again, part of the reason why I really uh enjoyed the book is just because, as I'm developing as a writer myself um in graduate school and and trying to think more capaciously about my, the ways in which that I write as well. Right? Engaging the environment, engaging the structure, engaging, you know, the smells, right? What does it smell like when, you know, folks walk into the hall? What are they, is it the cigar smoke, right? Where's that coming from? Is it coming from Cuba? Is it coming from Tampa, right? You know, where's where it, right? And so, so that was to me one of, right, on top of the amazing history that you're writing to, right? Gotta, gotta foreground that. I also think that readers are going to say, damn, like, you know, th- this is, this is her first, this is her first nonfiction, man, look, she, she needs to keeps going, f- f- stumble upon something else.
0: Well, you know, it was, it was, um it was fun for me in that way, because I, I'd run across something in the journals that said uh, what they spent, right? Mm-hmm. And then I might see that they bought cigars, you know, they bought Cuban cigars. And then I might fi- see that the woman uh, who took care of the hall, the guardian, was uh cooking gumbo. So, you know, there's my smells right there. You no. Know? So it's easy to describe the smells if you know that gumbo is cooking and the and the guys are smoking cigars.
1: And th- and that's the beautiful imagery, right? Where when you're when you're reading, right, no matter if you're outside reading on on a beautiful day, no matter if you're inside on a stormy blustery one, you're able to be taken, right? on this particular historical journey that is both, um, dynamic and, and incredible, but also very sad and, and violent, um, all at the same time, which, right, is largely the human condition, but especially of, uh, of black folks. Um, and so, right. So, so you, you had gotten to a bit of this particular question. So I'm gonna ask you the, the back half of it. Um, right, we talked about right, your process and, and the five year period of you reading the documents. Um, can you speak specifically to um, your, the, the, the biggest challenges that you faced in bringing Economy Hall from the pages, the, the, the pages that you read over the five years into the book that I read and our listeners are going to read as well?
0: Mm, that, that's a good question. Uh, there were different kinds of challenges. The, the writing challenge was sort of reading and interpreting the handwriting and, and interpreting the sentences because they were not always um, modern French. So that, so every once in a while I'd get to a place, well, more than every once in a while, fairly frequently, I'd get to a place where I couldn't really understand it completely. So I'd consult uh, one of the priests at the school I was teaching at, at St. Peter's, who spoke 16 languages. So he, he could give me an idea about it. Uh, And also because some of the documents that I read were in Spanish. So he helped me out with the Spanish and the French and the handwriting. So um, for the Mark Stefano, I'll shout out to Mark. So that that helped. Um, There were other challenges, though, that were um, human challenges. For example, when I first was trying to sell the book, nobody seemed that interested. It didn't it didn't seem to be that interesting a topic. And now that 20 years have passed people are very interested in black history. So, so that challenge, just not being discouraged that this history was important, you know, and the history is Mm -hmm. very important because this was, uh, when you look at some of the big cases that went on during reconstruction and some of the big movements that went on during reconstruction happened in New Orleans, Plessy versus Ferguson happened in New Orleans, slaughterhouse happened in New Orleans. Um, the, uh, Early uh, first Louisiana Republican convention happened in New Orleans. You know, there Mm -hmm. were so many things, the massacres that that prompted the uh, U.S. Congress to adopt the uh, 14th Amendment happened in New Orleans. You know, so so I had to show this sort of in the particular and in the national.
1: Hmm. Yeah. And, and there's, and there's so much, right. And, um, Dr. Jessica Brie Johnson, I had her on for her, uh, book last year, Wicked Flesh. And, you know, one of the things that she, uh, often says, um, she said in the interview and says often on Twitter is New Orleans, uh, black New Orleans is, is the heart of the world. I believe is the, the refrain. Sorry, Dr. Johnson, if I butchered that just slightly. Um, and so to me, your book Right, I think is a great um, a company. Um, you know, c- uh, both of y'all are c- accompanying each other on the on this road of uh, Black New Orleans being the center of the world um, because the convergences, right? Um, maybe some the
0: convergences. There were there were a lot of things going on in New Orleans. It was one of the the biggest slave ports in the United States, if not the biggest slave port. So that was that was important. Also, they had a free black population that was 45% of the black population. And that compares to about 14% of the black population nationwide by the beginning. So in in the 1830s and the 1840s, almost half of the black people there were free people of color. So so that kind of strength kind of gave them and uh, gave them the opportunity to have literacy and gave them the opportunity to get a head start on uh, Reconstruction.
1: Indeed, indeed. And, um, you know, I, and I think that uh, New Orleans, and, and, it, and it draws out really well in your text is, um, you know, not only the convergences, but also the, the complexity, right? Because you're, you're talking about, um, you know, some of the characters, right, are, you know, obviously, um, people of African descent, um, and, and who see themselves as black, but are also engaged in the economy of slavery, Right, as in Slavers too, and so I think you know maybe for the the reader who um, doesn't really know New Orleans' history, this is coming like, hold on, uh, are you sure this ain't fiction? Like, is this real? Like, did that really happen? It's like, yeah. Um, so, so you know, in that way too, um, I'm kind of skipping ahead here, but um, can you actually speak to ha- to to that particular? Uh, the I don't know if nuance would even be the right word. I think it's just factual correctness. But um, can you speak about how you uh, wrote about the particular complexities I just mentioned in your narrative history of Economy Hall and Black New Orleans at large?
0: It, it was not easy. Um, it was not easy to approach when I found it out myself. I had to step back for a few months and think about it. You know, what did I think about this and, and how could I approach this? Um, so, one of the things was I saw, I, I read uh, Carter Woodson's work, and I think it was in the 1840s, uh, Free Black Owners of Slaves. And it, is, uh, it was a monograph that he did, and he named all of them that were in the 1830 census. So I looked through that. They were, they were throughout the South. Uh, I saw some of my economy people in there. And then I thought, then I read that uh, in his estimation, most of the people who owned slaves were uh, people who owned their families. So that, that gave me pause for a second. How does somebody own their wife or their children, right? Mm-hmm. I started reading uh, legal documents, and the legal documents led me to legal documents and secondary books. I think it's uh, Judith Schaefer uh, who talked about uh, legal changes that were made. So in the beginning, a person could buy himself or herself right mm-hmm. and then after that a person could buy could not buy himself or herself could buy someone else by putting down a bond uh, about the cost of a house right so you could you would buy the person you would put up this bond and then the person had to leave the state okay that made a little sense to me why somebody might own their wife right or their husband sounds terrible to our modern ears. But if the person is by law, then if you buy your wife or your husband and then they have to leave you, then, you know, what does that mean to you? What does that mean to your family? So I had to think about that. I saw that some people were straight up slave owners, right? Some mm-hmm. people in the economy and some people outside of the economy, black people in Louisiana, black people around the United States. Some were straight up slave owners as we know them. Uh, some were people who owned their families. Some were people who seemed like they wanted to get out of slavery, like uh, Francois uh, Dumas. Uh, he wasn't an economy member, but he, he inherited uh, a number of slaves. And then when the Civil War came along, he joined the Union Army with his slaves. So, you know, we just have to, there are so many different instances that we have to look at and see how are people coping with this. You'll also notice though, that in the book, because in the book, I follow a fellow named Lujabogil. Mm-hmm. And his parents came from Haiti. And they both uh, left around the time of the, um, the revolution. His father, I think, was one of the revolutionaries. Because one of his friends was uh, Charles Savory, who was a fighter in the Haitian Revolution. Uh, and that man signed his wedding certificate. Uh, so I figured they're, they're good friends. Um, his mm-hmm. mother came from Jeremy. Uh, and she said that the person she came with was someone who had lived on her plantation. And then at the beginning of the book, if you remember, she sold this person. Yep. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. so I'm saying, okay, you've got people who are fighters for freedom, but you also have people who are pretty heartless, you know? Um, so I just wrote down the facts. You know, I wrote that that is what she did. You know, I had the document that said she did it. I wrote down that's what she did. She, she, she sold it to a man who uh who the Faubourg Marini is named after, Bernard Marini, who was also a slave owner. So slavery basically ran the economy down there. It ran, it ran the economy of New Orleans. As we will go on in the future, we will see that it ran the economy of the United States and probably of much of the Western world. You know, it was uh, mm-hmm. and I think I say on the on in the book that the um the enslaved were like Atlas holding the world economy on their shoulders.
1: Indeed, indeed, and and in particular, the the enslaved people that you see in in the book and that we learn through uh, Dr. Milo Hall's work and 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 many other people. And so, um, it, it's interesting because um uh, uh well he's now Dr. Clint Smith, but he he has a book coming out um uh on you know it's another narrative history. Um, of, uh, of slavery and he's, you know, from new Orleans as well. So I'm interviewing him in the next couple months. And so it's actually interesting that, um, the, the, the two narrative nonfiction, um, histories, uh, where slavery is a major component are people who are, or, or, who are New Orleans folk. Um, so, 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 you know, that, that cultural extension y'all are bringing to, to the airwaves of new books and African-American studies. So I really appreciate that. Uh,
0: Johnson, I can't think of his first name right now, but he did a good book about the slave um, about the the slave market in New Orleans too. Oh yes. Johnson.
1: Walter Johnson. Absolutely. Walter Johnson, Walter yeah.
0: Johnson's book was really helpful to me uh, in terms of looking at once i I discovered, you know, so much slavery was going on there. Just going around and finding the actual places that was really helpful to me and inspirational, to me.
1: Right, and and I'm I'm gonna make sure to uh to tag uh, uh Dr. Johnson on on the podcast too, and uh, you know definitely um and also Dr. Stephanie Jones Rogers, who's whose work builds um and and differs a little bit, but definitely builds on it as well um, in terms of uh, 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 white women and and the slave markets too. Um, And so, you know, you you had mentioned uh, Walter Johnson's work actually. And so that's actually a great uh, tie into my next question. So um, like you had mentioned before, the economy hall manuscripts were really the text really archival centerpiece, uh, but not the only one. Right. Uh, So can you talk about what other collections and other secondary documents were also central to your primary research for this for for this book.
0: Well, I have a bibliography, a huge bibliography. It is of, um, yeah. so hopefully people will use it. That's why you know I wanted it in there. Uh, I use many other secondary sources, but there's a really rich resource in New Orleans in the Conveyance Office uh, of New Orleans. Uh, it's, it goes there's the Notarial Archives and there's the Conveyance Office. In the conveyance office, you, you realize that people were uh, sold like real estate, right? So there are real estate sales and there are slave sales. In the, in the conveyance office, there are indexes of these books, these slave sales and these uh, real estate sales. So I actually went to look at Lou Jebogia, my main character here, mm-hmm. a real person, but main character. Um, I looked to see how much was his family really involved in slavery. So I was able to look at all the indexes from about 1810 to Emancipation. and you can just look through they're ordered by name, so you can look through the A's, B, C, D, right? So I looked at, through all of the B's for that period of time, about 50 years, to see if they had sold anybody, right or bought mm-hmm. anybody during that time. Uh, he wasn't involved. his parent, his mother was involved. So I did see that. But, but the conveyance office books are fabulous because not only do they tell you um, the name of the uh, enslaver, they will also mention the name of the enslaved person often. Uh, they will tell you the prices and maybe some descriptions. And it uh, it's really rich. It's a really rich resource. So I use the notarial Archives quite a bit, and I encourage anybody to use it. Uh, Hope they don't have a flood of people, but in, in a way, I do hope <laughs> they have a flood of people. I hope a lot of people use it. Um, I used that. I used other books, um, but um, census records, you know, to find out who's related to who. Uh, in a way, I found out that there was a crocker who was related to some enslaved uh, young men who he tried to who he tried to free, his nephews. Uh, that, was, that was one. Um, what else did I use? all sorts of secondary things I mean really and then I and then I walked around you know I mean and I'm from New Orleans so when I would locate a building or or a spot that something might have happened I actually went to the location and walked around to see how far would it be to walk from one place to another
1: and and it's fascinating because what you really show in your book is that economy hall should be seen as an important physical and also ideological center and intellectual center of black America um in, in because of what ha- went on from effectively 1836 on up into the mid 20th century um if, if I got the chronology correctly and so you know and 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 that that'll be you know something that we can get to at, in when we finish but you know i, I want to make sure that the the listeners know that like go read this book. You're going to realize that economy hall is, you yeah. know, not only the, the physical space, but the people that populated the space. Yeah. Right. And is a an space. They were in
0: 1836. Just think about this. In 1836, it was against the law for the enslaved to read. And in 1836, the, the economy society had a library inside their building. So they had a library with atlases, and law books, and uh, and they were going back and forth from Europe to Haiti to Mexico during these years, from 1836 to 1857. It was actually against the law for a free person to go outside of Louisiana and come back in, but I saw people going in and out of in and out of the state all of the time. And in fact, one year that um, one of the brothers, they used to call each other brothers, uh, one of the brothers went to Mexico and came back. Everybody stood up and applauded.
1: You
0: know? Hmm. So, so I'm guessing that he kind of snuck in you know
1: yeah yeah no and you know and and you see that you know um you know and I'm from Florida so you know the Gulf Coast and the Gulf of Mexico means uh, a lot right um good and bad and so you know you see some of the members go to Mexico Veracruz right which has its own uh you know Literally, almost five hundred years worth of um, worth of African uh, and Afro Mexican history, and so it's just really interesting and really cool to see the ways in which um, geography and and the Black world, right, the, the 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 Black world of the Gulf Coast, plays a uh, central role in uh, the economy, uh, the economy, society, and also uh, the physical location of Economy Hall. Um, and it also makes me think also about Saint-Domingue and also Haiti in particular, um, because obviously the, uh, one, the one of the central events of, of the book is obviously the Haitian Revolution and uh, its connection to New Orleans. And so um, can you sp- specifically talk about the ways in which uh, Saint-Domingue and Haiti and the memory of the revolution and of the government um, inform the members of uh, Economy Hall in, in whichever way? That it did.
0: I think it had a great deal of influence, actually, uh, because, for example, if we look at Boguio, Boglio's father was probably in the Revolution. His friends were definitely in the Revolution. Charles Savory uh, was in the Revolution. Uh, some of the other members you'll see then join the Battle of New Orleans. They, these men were, uh, they, they fought in the Battle of New Orleans. Later, their sons joined the Civil War. What you saw, and and let me just backtrack a little bit. When these men came from the Haitian Revolution and were in New Orleans, the government was really afraid that they were going to um, join with the enslaved and revolt and take over New Orleans. So there was a real fear there. So they sort of kept everything kind of low key, right? Um, they they stayed in the in the community. But one of the people that they brought into, they brought a painting into the into the meeting one night, and they had a big ceremony for bringing in this painting that one of their friends had gotten this portrait painted. And it was a portrait of Alexandre Pétion, who was the uh, first president of the Haitian Republic. So when I saw that that had happened, I realized that these men were kind of revolutionary. They weren't the the most, you know, they weren't the the kind of people that were going to go out and start shooting people, you know, they weren't they weren't that kind of, you know, they weren't gonna have armed revolt, but they definitely were seditious
1: mm-hmm. because
0: they they're honoring someone from the Haitian Revolution, they're Haitian revolutionaries, and they're basically writing in their journals about how they honor Pétion, how they honor his memory. And then at the time of the Civil War and the Emancipation, some of the 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 things that they tried to pass for the freedmen, like the Freedmen's Aid Society, tried to follow along some of the lines that Petion did, rather unsuccessfully, I have to say. But but to try to give the uh, people who were enslaved their own bits of land, mm-hmm. you know, so that was one of the things that they tried to do, which was tried also in Haiti. So you could see that this line had followed right on through.
1: And, and it's and it's fascinating because you get to learn, um, you know, this in a way diasporic um, history and also in, in the ways that it informs New Orleans' history and New Orleans is one of literally one of a kind, um, in the United States. Um, it, it's exceptional, but also exceptional, right. That, that double entendre there. And so it, it also makes, you know, like you say, like the, the particular complexities of the United States are really seen in, in, in ways in New Orleans that I think that you don't really see everywhere. In um, particular, because of the history and, you know, because of the different um, empires, right? Spanish, French, um, or imperial, uh, 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 imperial governments. And so, you know, one of the things that, um, you know, in, I was talking about blurbs before from uh, Dr. Gwendolyn Midlow Hall, you know, I'm gonna actually read one of the blurbs that i that I read um, from Library Journal. It's one, it's one of the better ones. You have many. You have, see, this is a great book. You, got you had many different people um, and, and organizations blurbing it, but this is one of the ones I like uh, the most. Um, it was from, like I said, uh, Library Journal, and it said about Economy Hall, by presenting a thriving community of free Black Americans in a major Southern city pre-Civil War and the actions of society members through 1935, Shake aims to deepen our sense of Black American history. End quote. And so as the author, right, they were talking about you, of course, definitely not me, not yet. Uh, So um, in particular, what pictures of black politics were you really attempting to construct in in your book, right? Because you go from 1936 to the importance of jazz, right? And and obviously how uh, the the way that the hall has hands in in, uh, the advent of jazz music as well. Um, so so I'd love to hear your answer to this one.
0: Well, I, I was trying to basically follow what I read, you know, to to, to present it, it as true as possible. So the, um, what I found out was during the Reconstruction period, and even the post-Reconstruction period, Economy Hall was a major uh, community center. So people came there to hear debates, and the way that they heard these debates was everybody was on an equal footing, right? Um, in fact, they said that in the meetings. They said that the the president of society is on the same footing as any member. And then at one time they said, uh, we would like you to uh, think of yourself as, the, as a poor shopkeeper. Think of yourself to be a humble, like a humble shopkeeper. So so they considered themselves to be very democratic. So when they were shut out in post-Reconstruction, when the violence, you know, your, your listeners are historians. So everybody knows that the violence shut people out of the political and democratic life of the, of the United States. When that happened, what people did was come back to Economy Hall. The, the Blacks in the community who had come to Economy Hall for voter registration, for example, uh, who had come to Economy Hall for debates over uh, suffrage, they came back now as a sort of shelter to, for their community. And when they'd come back, they would have parties. They'd have parties to raise money for a, a school or for the nuns, or for uh, the poor in the neighborhood, and that the music sort of replicated the music that was going on at that point. But because it was Economy Hall, it was a very democratic music. So I tend to think that the democracy of Economy Hall sort of um, encouraged the democracy of jazz, in which every person gets to play their own solo and sort of take the music the way they they would like to take it.
1: Now that is a great way to talk about, uh, you know, and a great way to answer the question. I, I love I love that flourish. I can tell you're a writer. I didn't know if you knew that. Um, and so, you know, and in, in how I think about uh, Economy Hall is that if effectively you're using the hall and the economy society as a way to talk about a, a new history, and maybe not even a new history, but to view the history of New Orleans from the Haitian Revolution on into the mid 19 uh, or the mid 20th century, and and look at it through the men that populated it and their families, um, Economy Hall, right, and that's why you talk about this free Black brotherhood, um, as well. And so, obviously, New Orleans is you know the centerpiece of this. So to ask you, as someone who is from New Orleans, and um, you know who especially in the epilogue we get to really see this, uh, the the familial come together even even more clearly. What does New Orleans mean to you?
0: Oh, boy, that's a good question. New Orleans is, uh, it's my home. It's my, uh, it's the home where my imagination is free. Uh, I, I, um, I feel like, and this is the way I felt when I was a young person in New Orleans, and I think you'll find this about a lot of Black New Orleanians. I feel like I can go anywhere in New Orleans and I will run into somebody I know so it feels very comfortable to me it's 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 my home, both imaginary and physically
1: mm. and, and and it's amazing it's it's a great place that um funny enough uh you know, to show my cards here and uh, don't 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 look I can't see you, but don't look at me sideways with this. I've actually never been to New Orleans, and i you know there's the there's a conference the Southern Historical Association's annual conference. God, please. Um, It's supposed to be in New Orleans uh, in November, which would be the first time that I'd I'd, uh, have the uh, opportunity and and the pleasure to to visit. Um, Although I did go to school uh, down I-10 at Florida A&M University in Tallahassee. Which, hey, you know what? It happens. you know, I had five I had five years and uh, didn't do it at all. But hey, you know, things happen.
0: I've been, I've been on ITED many times. <laughs> listen, so so when you and the other historians go to New Orleans, you have to get out of the French Quarter. But mm-hmm. when you are in the French Quarter, you have to notice what you're looking at. You know, when, when you're looking at these buildings, look at the buildings right behind them, which are the slave quarters in many of these places. So you'll see the buildings, and then you'll see like a half of uh, – like a kitchen house and a, and a little house right above it. And those are usually where the enslaved people live. So, so you have to notice these kinds of things when you go down there too, and then go into the Faubourg Marigny, which is where a lot of the the people that I'm writing about lived, the Faubourg Marigny and the Trimé. So there's a, there's a lot more outside of New Orleans in the French quarter.
1: Mm, Very good. And so
0: French quarter, actually, let me just say this. The French quarter was owned before, before, uh, Blacks moved into the uh, Marigny and the Tremé area, many of the properties in the uh, French Quarter were owned by people of color, which, mm. which doesn't usually go into the history books. If you go over to the Historic New Orleans Collection, which is my publisher, there's a nice uh, table that they had set up the last time I was there that has a, an interactive map of places that were owned by free women of color in the French Quarter. Ooh. Yeah, really interesting.
1: No, no, that is because you know, New Orleans is a place where, you know, it 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 has everything that, you know, a historian, especially of uh of the enslaved, um would, you know, wanna wanna learn, especially if it would be like for me the first time. Um and, and you know what, um before we go, i I've, I wrote this down just now and I didn't write it down before. Um especially like I mentioned in the epilogue, you had mentioned some of your, some of the, the people that you had, um, uh, uh, I I believe it would be, uh, oral history interviews and such like that. So can you actually, before we go, can you discuss also the role of oral histories in your text too? Um, especially when you talk about the memory of the, of economy hall and also its last, uh, living members as well.
0: Sure. Um, let let me um, I'll start off with the oral history. Okay.
1: Uh,
0: the oral history because I because I grew up in one of these historic areas, which are now called historic areas, but they're basically uh, black neighborhoods, uh, and uh, people were always talking about the history. You know, um, for one reason, because a lot of their families had gone with the uh, diaspora, had gone north, right? Some of their families, because there were a lot of mixed families, had gone white, right? So people were always talking about who was missing, you know, um, and and where had they gone and why they had gone there, and it always connected me to history. And then they also talked about well, what we did have going on in New Orleans, you know, they didn't really have to go because look at all what we had going on. So that actually made my prologue and epilogue: the people who who left and the people who stayed. Now among the people who stayed were the people who were in this community that kept this community going. So this community started in the 1830s. Their descendants were still living around the same areas in the 1930s when the when the uh, when I have the last journal entries, they were still living in the 1950s when I was a child. You know, so I'm a child of the 1950s and early 60s. So my father's friend uh, Louis Wilderson was one of the last members of the economy. My uh, cousins, cousins, friends, uh, right. parents, <laughs> my cousins, cousins, parents uh, uh, were, were some of the last members of the economy. And um, they were able to tell me what it was like. Um, um, Mrs. Blosh, one of the mothers uh, and Mrs. Boissier were able to tell me what it was like to dance at the economy when they were teenagers. So I had these people all around me. So what I would, what, what it impressed upon me was that these men had started out to create a community that would help one another and teach one another and, and give a handout to uh, suffering humanity. And that's pretty much what they did, you know? They helped one another, they taught one another, and they and they helped humanity because they opened up schools and churches and you saw all of the people that I knew volunteering. They were always volunteering for one thing or another. So this community had really lasted all the way through.
1: Mm-hmm. Beautiful. And, and and for those like myself who are uh, going to visit New Orleans, um, you know, once things get uh, settled down and people get more vaccines, um, where can we, where would we go in, in New Orleans to go see what, you know, where uh, where Economy Hall uh, uh, stood?
0: Well, where Economy Hall stood, it came down during uh, Hurricane Betsy. It was it was destroyed during Hurricane Betsy. Uh, and then the it, it was torn down a little bit after that. But it stood on Ursuline Street, 1422 Ursuline Street. So that probably doesn't mean anything to you right now. But it's the back. It's the play yard of a school right now. There is a building near it that is a, a shotgun house that was one of the other properties that they purchased. But right around the corner is a place called the African-American Museum. And if it is open, it'll and you can go into that uh, big sort of antebellum house you'll be able to see the style of the the architecture. Um, There's another place that is at the corner of Dumaine and Carolac, which is where the first economy, um, where the first economy meeting was held. And that's in the Faubourg Marigny. It's on the corner and it has a marker on it that it says, uh, this house was built by Charles Laveau, who was the father of Marie Laveau. And you may know Marie Laveau as being known as a voodoo queen. Mm -hmm. So, that that house is still standing you can look at that but i i think just walking through the the french quarter in the faubourg Marigny um is a good way to start i think there may be a slave an enslaved trail now uh, an app mm-hmm. that you can look for for new orleans so so that will have actually it'll bring you to some of the slave markets if you'd like to see that mm-hmm. too you know but but just go there and keep your eyes open you know
1: there it is. There it is. And so I, I, really thank you for that because you're not only playing a virtual tour guide for us right now. I'm sure people are taking notes right now as we speak. Uh, but also I appreciate that because um, one of the parts about this book, right, it's not only a, a pretty much a 150 year history, give or take, of of the people involved with the with the economy society and the physical hall, but like with so many things, the legacies of societies and, um, and organizations and, and institutions and buildings live on well after they and all of it, they're the people that are around during that time are gone, um, or with this, the net with natural disasters. Um, so I really appreciate that. And, uh, the, the last question is, you know, we writers out here, so I always got to, uh, head out with one of these kinds of questions. Um, what people past and or present Inspire you the most to write and to research the subjects that you do.
0: Oh boy, uh, the um, well, everybody, I'm, you know, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> I read everything I can get my hands on, basically, um, whether I like it or not. I'll read a little bit of it, you know. So if I if I read something, I'll start with the things I don't like first. If I read something I don't like, I'll have an argument for it, you know. I'll I'll, I'll that'll help me figure out why I don't like it. And what what my argument needs to be. And then the people I like, I mean, I like writers like, um, well, of course, James Baldwin is a, you know, is a spiritual guide. Um, But the um, uh, Isabel Wilkerson's books uh, were very nice in terms of structural ideas, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, and then research um, I'm reading Michelle Obama's book just because I like Michelle Obama, you know? But, yeah. you know, but I mean, I mean, I read everything. I read everything I can get my hands on. I've always, I mean, I've, I've told my students that if somebody hands you a, a flyer, take the flyer, read the flyer, you know, see what's going on and see what people are doing and how they write. You know, you have to read everything
1: very good very good and so uh Fatima Sheikh thank you so much for sitting down with me on new books in African- American studies a channel on the new books network y'all and please listeners y'all know what to do you know what we do we go buy the books of the authors that myself and my co-hosts bring on and so for today once again we had the amazing opportunity to chat with Fatima Sheikh the author of Economy Hall, The Hidden History of a Free Black Brotherhood. And so, until next time, y'all, make sure to go out and support our authors. And y'all know, this is Adam Xavier McNeil, host of New Books in African American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. Over and out.